If you are joining us via Morals and Markets podcast on your favorite podcast app, please like and subscribe and share the podcast um, so that other people can see Dr. Salzman's great content. And with that, uh, we are going to be talking central bank digital currencies. What's the point? I think this is a super, super important topic that not a lot of people are talking about. So I'm really excited to hear Dr. Salzman's comments. And with that, I'm handing it over to you, Richard. Abby, thank you. And I didn't realize I have another birthday to celebrate, my birthday with Atlas Society, one of my favorite of all my birthdays. So now I have two, two birthdays. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you, Atlas Society. And thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, Morals and Markets, for those who don't know, is a monthly webinar, 90 minutes, where I try to integrate and synthesize the moral aspects of markets and markets. So some of it sometimes is just technical economics which will satisfy the economists in you. But those of you who are more philosophical and don't really know much about economics, you'll get that angle of it as well. But I think the integration of the two can be fascinating. So I try to pick topics that have both in it. They'll either have ethical aspects or political, economic, all three of those. That's what I specialize at Duke. This is mostly aimed to college students. Uh, it began with a small group at Duke, and then it's been growing since. Abby's been helping grow the list. So just so you know the context, some of you are new to this and wondering what the heck we are doing. That's what we're doing. So I thank Atlas Society for promoting it and, and describing it so well. This uh, topic tonight I picked, and by the way, the format, 90 minutes, I, I try to say something for maybe 25, 30 minutes. Then I turn it over to you. Um, you can ask questions. You can make comments. Um, but the idea is not to have me monologue for 90 minutes. You wouldn't like that. Uh, so I'll, I'll present material, you know, stuff to chew on for 25, 30 minutes or so, and then uh, I'll stop uh, there. I have my eye on the clock, so I'm usually good about this, Abby, right? I tend to stop around then. Um, so anyway, we'll get more joiners. This is a nice turnout, Abby, isn't it, for the for for this early on in the in the podcast in the broadcast. <laughs> Yeah. Last, the reason I picked this topic last month, I had the great pleasure of having one of my Duke students, Jack Kriesel, with me, and we talked about cryptocurrency just broadly. And, and Jack is absolutely brilliant on this. I myself uh, have a long history of studying monetary economics and central banking and the gold standard and always from a pro-capitalist free market uh, perspective. Jack, Jack is very learned, not only on crypto. I mean, he's only 17, 18 years old very learned not only on crypto and bitcoin but he is aware of the surrounding call it moral political context of money and therefore uh you know aspects of monetary autonomy privacy choice in currencies all the things of interest mostly to libertarians objectivists and others who think the government should not be a monopolist issuer of currency so the reason i picked tonight was well leveraging off of last month's topic what about central banks issuing crypto? So in other words, the broader issue is crypto is becoming a kind of interesting competitor, say, to conventional fiat paper monies or commercial bank deposits. But what, why should central banks at all have a role in this? They are increasingly trying to have a role in this. And the literature I read and the reports I read from central bankers uh, presented as we're just trying to help. We're just, we're just trying to uh, facilitate this wonderful new innovative <laughs> form of money. We're just trying to uh, make the payment system more efficient. Uh, we're just trying to ensure the safety and soundness of the financial system. I, I'm more skeptical 
uh, of what they're trying to do. There, there's a certain truth to some of that, but from my perspective, and, and now here I'm just going to back actually read the descriptor I gave uh, for the listening audience who may not have seen the description or abstract of tonight, because it really, I think, summarizes, summarizes what I'm going to say. And you'll see that it's a much more skeptical treatment of central banks. And then I'll dig into one, call it the positive aspects, why central banks would involve themselves in digital currencies or cryptos, and then the, what I call the more nefarious reasons. So here's the descriptor for those of you who didn't get to see it. Quote, central bankers as monopolist issuers of state-based fiat money, basically mandatory money, they operate not to help economies, but to assist fiscally profligate governments in funding themselves cheaply and surreptitiously. Wow, that's like in a hidden way. <clears throat> Sounds like I'm a conspiracy theorist. Continuing the quote, lately, in response to the spread and possible threat of cryptocurrency, central banks have pursued plans to issue their fiat monies in digital form. According to the Bank for International Settlements, by the way, a bank of central banks, they're, they're a bunch of central bankers, 86% of their members, their central banks are actively researching central bank digital currencies, what I'll call CBDCs. I hate that acronym. 60% are experimenting with it, experimenting with it, and 14% actually have pilot projects. Further, the final part of the quote, fans claim that CBDCs will help central banks better manage the payment system, inflation, and the economy. But nefarious motives are also likely having to do with modern monetary theory and more direct means of financing profligate governments, unquote. Okay, I say nefarious. I mean, that means kind of like dastardly bad motives. Let me, so let me first start with the positive and then turn to the negative, which I'll um, emphasize more in my late, the later part of my comments. Digital money is a perfectly fine, technologically capitalist, profit-oriented form of money. There's no doubt about that. If in the free market movement or in objectivism or libertarianism, you know there are cases made for the gold standard, I, I make a case for the gold standard I have for 40 years. I still think it's one of the most ingenious, best monetary systems ever, the most objective system ever created. <clears throat> and yet, what did gold transform into? Claims on gold, uh, currencies convertible into gold, and things like credit cards, checking accounts, uh, debit cards, point of sale terminals. You know, I'm, I'm like moving into the more recent decades. They are but means, uh, more convenient and lower cost means of moving your money around. So no advocate of free market money should get caught up in the idea of, I like these old clunky, you know, Dickensian type monies that clunk around in your pocket like gold coins. Not necessary. The, the key part of the gold standard was not just that gold is an objective money. You cannot print it. You cannot fabricate it. Alchemists for decades and centuries tried. It could not turn lead into gold. So one of the great things about gold is people did converge on gold as money over the centuries. It's got a centuries-long record. 
But it's also undeniable that for convenience, people would want to use that eventually as base money, as an anchor, so to speak, for other forms of money. But these other forms could only retain their value. This is the key point. Uh, currencies, checking accounts, debit cards, they could only retain their value, derive their value as derivative monies if they were linked to gold in some way, if they still remain convertible into gold in some way. And that we know, if you know the history, was totally broken 50 years ago. 50 years ago, the major countries of the world went off the gold standard, meaning no more government monies are, are connected at any level to gold anymore. But notice gold still exists. Gold is still mined. Gold is still exchanged, stored, insured. People still value it. It's worth way more than it was when the uh, countries went off the gold standard. I give you all this background to suggest that central banks are not really keen on operating on objective money, meaning they cannot survive in today's world with a limited supply of money. With a, with a money supply that only goes up um, in incremental uh, reasonable percentages. And so that's one of the reasons they went off the gold standard. It was not because the world did not have enough gold. It's because governments engaged in excessive spending would not tax their citizens to the full extent of that spending, meaning they had to borrow the difference, meaning they had to go to a central bank to help them borrow. I know it's somewhat, it's, this will sound somewhat technical, but that really what was going on when they were going off the gold standard. Now, fast forward to today and the private banking system and private monetary system, I would have to say, has done an enormously amazing job of modernizing the payment system. It wasn't something central banks did. They kind of dragged their heels about this, but the private banking system was the one that came up with checking accounts and credit cards and debit cards and crypto and Bitcoin. If you know, this is a private sector project uh, looked at skeptically by governments. Why? Because they looked at it and they said, wait a minute, is there some kind of competing money out there that we don't control, that we don't monopolize? The reason the governments of the world through central banks monopolize money is they do not want the private sector determining money its value, who gets it, who borrows it, who lends it, at what interest rate. The government wants to control that in a context where the government is out of control. They want to control money because they are fiscally out of control. They're spending ridiculous, excessive amounts of money. They need to get their hands on money to be the sole issuers of money, controllers of money. But because they can't totally stop innovation unless they totally take over the monetary system, they will see things like digital currencies. And so this brings us to our topic tonight. What are they doing by offering or thinking about or researching central bank digital currencies? I see it as something like a co-opting of the system, an early attempt for them to get their hands on or their regulatory tentacles into this system. On the one hand, they don't want to come out as Neanderthal barbarians saying, we're against digital. They don't want to do that. They want to be seen as, um, you know, monetary experts, monetary futurists. But really, if you look at the history, you cannot really trust these central banks, by the way, especially in the last dozen years, 
You might have trusted them before 2008, but what have all of them done since 2008? Massive increases in the money supply, a depression of interest rates down to near zero, sometimes negative, and an increasing control over the payment system in banks. Uh, there's been a real acceleration of this, whereas the banking system was moving toward more freedom from 1980 to 2000, it's gone the other way since 9-11. Some of it under the pretext of we need to stop these terrorists from moving money around the banking system, or we need to stop uh, black market movements of money, you know, uh, associated say with drug dealing or human trafficking or something like that. This is the pretext governments have been using to say, hey, we need to know what's going on inside your bank account inside the payment system. So bank financial, bank privacy, I would say, and financial privacy generally are gone, are almost completely gone. If you knew what the system looked like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I mean, people had private bank Swiss, account, Swiss bank accounts. They didn't have their name on them, they had numbers on them. You really did have financial privacy. The government couldn't just access your bank records. They had to go get a subpoena. They had to go to a court and prove that you were uh, uh, had there was probable cause that you were a criminal. Now they can access anything. They can they can look into your bank records and force J.P. Morgan to tell you what they're doing. I think this is why they're interested in crypto. I think it's why they're interested in digital. It's not to make the financial system and payment system more efficient. It's to keep its eyes on you. It's to make sure you're not a tax avoider. It's to make sure you're not a, I don't know, a, a Canadian trucker objecting to masks in Canada. So, so just look at all the stuff Trudeau did to the banking system in Canada over the last three weeks. He basically totally took it over. He basically stopped payments, uh, even in things like GoFundMe accounts. He blocked or tried to block Bitcoin accounts uh, of truckers. They looked into who actually gave money to truckers. How did they get that? They called up the banks and said, show us all the payments, you know, all the way down to $50. For a couple of days, there was actually a run on the banks in, in Canada. People so fearful that the government was either going to seize their money, stop movements of their money, investigate their bank records, that they tried to get cash out of the banks. They didn't trust the banks. So these are the kind of, and now if you look at, of course, what's happening in Ukraine and elsewhere, these are the kind of things that we need to keep our eye on when we hear about governments saying, hey, we're going to get in the digital currency business. Now, I mentioned in the introduction, um, modern monetary theory. I, I don't want this uh, segment to be on that. We could have a whole segment on that. But I just wanted to briefly say what it is and how it relates to digital currencies central bank digital currencies. In brief, modern monetary theory is, uh, first of all, it's not modern and it's not really a theory. <laughs> this has been around for decades. It's mostly, it mostly comes from the Keynesians. But the idea of modern monetary theory is something like this. If we set up the structure of the system correctly, we, by the way, as central planners, the government can issue money without limit and consequence. And it can issue debt without limit and without consequence. Now, just think of this. It's like rejecting the law of causality. Now, on money, what does it mean to say we can issue as much money as we want uh, without consequence? What would be the consequence of issuing a lot of money? Inflation, a decline in the value of money. 
the cost of living skyrockets. In the extreme, hyperinflation. I mean, there's a long history of this, so it's not like I'm making it up. Um, but they're saying, no, 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 no. We can issue a lot of money and not have inflation, point one. Point two, we can also borrow a lot of money, issue a lot of government bonds. Now, this is a little more technical, harder to follow, without interest rates rising. Do you get that? Imagine, we can borrow, 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 and interest rates won't go up. That does sound illogical, doesn't it? Usually, if you borrow too much money, the banker says, you have to pay a high interest rate. Why? Because you might default. This seems like too much money you're borrowing like on your credit card. The modern monetary theorists say, no, 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 we're living in a brave new world where the government can not only print money without causing a lot of inflation, it can borrow money without boosting interest rates. If anything, look, interest rates are declining, they'd say. So it seems a paradox. People look at this and they say, well, we know for a fact, especially since 08, especially since the financial crisis, that governments have issued a lot of money and that doesn't until recently doesn't appear to be a lot of new inflation. And they have really issued a lot of debt. Government debt in the U.S. is up to 30 trillion now. It was only 10 trillion in 2008. So it's tripled since 2008. But the government borrows at 10 years now at 2%. I mean, that's a very cheap rate. Why do I say all this? Central banks are facilitating this. Central banks are not printing money and keeping interest rates low because they're trying to help the economy. They're doing it because if interest rates were higher, the government budget would be busted. The interest expense on the debt would be so high, it would crowd out other spending, like on welfare payments or national defense. Japan knows this. Japan has been doing this for two decades now, a lot longer than the US has, and it also has very low interest rates. And Japan also is very worried about if interest rates go up, the country will go bankrupt. Well, really, the government will go insolvent because, again, understand this. If you have a lot of debt and a low interest rate, your interest expense could be low. But if the interest rate goes up and you still have that huge debt, your interest expense will be a big part of your budget. That's what Japan's been worried about. That's what the U.S. and the Fed is worried about. Notice they have no underlying solution for the deficit spending. They still do the deficit spending. They can't control what Congress is doing, but the Fed is like a handmaiden to this fiscal profligacy. It is told to finance uh, the deficit. Now here's where digital currencies come in. It is a lot easier to issue money without limit if you just do it with a stroke of a key. You don't need printing presses to create currency, see what I'm saying? You do not have to go through the banking system. You simply create the digital currency directly from the central bank. That's one form of central bank digital currency. So there, there are two basic forms, but I don't wanna to get too much in the technics because I'll, I'll lose the audience. But one form would be, have your account at the central bank. And what do you think of that? So imagine you have a checking account right now at, uh, I don't know, Citibank. Imagine if your account was at the Federal Reserve. Doesn't that sound weird? But there are some advocates of central bank digital currencies who say the system we should be moving toward is everyone has their banking accounts at the central bank. I mean, that to me is total government takeover of the banking system. 
In the beginning, they'll just say, as they have been, if you read these reports, they'll say, we're just providing services to people who are unbanked. Unbanked means people who don't have banking accounts. Now, if I asked you, tell me the profile of people who don't have a bank account, what would you say? Who are the two groups you can think of? Anyone? <laughs> the, the first group they would say is poor people. Poor people either don't have enough money to put in the bank or you know minimum deposits are too high or the fees are too high. Okay, maybe that's true. It, the estimates are that's like 3% of the population. But the other group would be what? Criminals, black market activity, tax evasion, right? All those kind of things that they accuse Bitcoiners of doing. Now they certainly do not want tax evasion, right? So part of the part of the threat, I think, of central bank digital currencies, mainly central banks getting more involved in these kind of off-roading currencies, is they really do want to inspect and invade and monitor your financial transactions. And once they provide this service, in the beginning, they'll just say, we're providing this service, you know, in addition to what banks do. But once they have that structure in place, it will be very easy for them to say, we're going to be the sole banker now, not Citibank or anyone else. So think of what's happened. They've already taken over the issuance of currency from private banks. The private banks issued money convertible into gold until the Federal Reserve monopolized it. So now the Federal Reserve monopolized money, but it was still the money that's in the vaults of, of Citibank and others, right? If you were a total central planner, you would not want to have any private banks. You don't want them taking, not really, you don't want them taking deposits. You don't want them making the loans. You want government officials to be taking the deposits and making the loans. That's what's happened in all socialist countries. They have one bank. Everyone has accounts at the bank. The bank issues money without limit. And here's the key, and here's the key to central bank digital currencies. They can debit and credit your account whenever they want instantaneously. Instantaneously. Now, you might think this is weird, like why would anyone do this actually came up during the COVID lockdowns. Now, think of the logic. COVID lockdowns, everyone go home and don't work. But you need money to pay your rent and food. Right? So we will send you a stimulus check. But the check takes forever to go through the mail and get to your mailbox. And then you walk to the bank and then the bank, the check has to clear and blah, blah, blah. There were people at the time saying, I wonder if we can do this instantaneously. Wouldn't it be nice if the Fed could just credit your account overnight? Once the Congress passes the bailout bill and they instruct the central bank to just credit your account. Next day you wake up, hey, there's money in my account. But notice, likewise, they could immediately tax your account. Why should we pass these tax bills? You know, they take forever to debate in Congress. <laughs> then we pass the tax bill. Then the House of, House of Representatives has to sign it. Then the Fed has to sign it. Then the IRS has to set up the blah, 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 blah. What if they could do it instantaneously? See the idea? This is what's very attractive, I think, to central banks on digital currencies. They really want direct, <laughs> direct access to your bank accounts and the lending mechanism. And for purposes of not only monetary and fiscal policy, which again, is not good for the economy, it's just good for the spenders. 
and the borrowers in Congress uh, in the White House. But for uh, privacy purposes, they do not want you to be able to do whatever you want with their money. They want to be able to track you. They want to be able to monitor you in a highly politicized setting. They want to be able to punish you. I mean, we saw this just last week in Canada. They can target certain groups and say, you just can't get your money because we're calling you terrorists or insurrectionists or enemies of the state. And likewise, friends of the state can get instantaneous subsidies. How wonderful. Last thing I'll leave you with, because I'm running out of time here a little bit. This is also a bit technical, but I, I'm shocked to the extent I found it in the central bank digital currency studies that have come out so far. And by the way, if this interests you, the Fed finally just issued a study on digital currencies, and it doesn't, however, commit to doing it. It's just studying the issue. But I think this is the beginning of it getting into the issue. <clears throat> I don't know if you realize this, but if you go to a bank and put your money in, they usually pay you interest. You know that concept, right? You gave them your money. You would like a return on your money. The bank pays you an interest rate. Now, it may be high or low or something, but you don't pay them, right? They pay you. So that's called positive interest rates. Well, one phenomenon we've seen in the last decade is negative interest rates. Now, this sounds this will sound weird, but what, but what is a negative interest rate? A negative interest rate is when you deposit your money and you pay the bank. Or a government borrows and the bond is at a negative interest rate. Instead of the government borrowing from you and paying you an interest rate, you pay the government an interest rate. It is bizarre. And yet such bonds do exist. People do buy them. And here's the important point. As governments all over the world over borrow, borrow too much and worry about paying too high an interest rate, they have begun to promote the idea of negative interest rates. And there's no other way to describe this except it's a massive default on bonds. Because think of it, in a normal setting, if the government is paying you a positive interest rate on a bond, and then one day you wake up and it said, we aren't paying, we're not gonna pay the interest or principal that is technically a default, right? That is what a default means on a bond, on any kind of loan. When the borrower says, I'm not paying. I'm not paying the interest or the principal. I'm just going to not do it. That's called a default. Well, I consider negative interest rates the equivalent of a default. It's the equivalent of the borrower not only not paying you an interest rate, but making you pay them an interest rate. And that is what digital currencies permit governments to do. And that is what I think they're moving toward doing. They're trying to set up this system so that when you put money in a bank and the richer you are, the more this will affect you, you will not see at the end of the month an accretion of your account with a positive interest rate. You'll see a deduction from your account, minus 2%, minus 3%, minus 4%, and it'll be a negative interest rate. And that is one way of government confiscating your wealth. It's much easier to do with a digital currency, because all they have to do is go on into the system and put in negative interest rate. If you're sitting there with cash, the government can't run around, unless it's gonna steal your cash, it can't run around and deduct the value of your cash, except through inflation. So 
I'll leave you with that. That is what I mean by the more nefarious possibilities that government might uh, use digital currencies for. But I wanted to make you aware of this because this, this requires a knowledge of two things which is difficult to have. It requires a knowledge of digital currencies. A lot of people can't get their heads around even that. What the heck is Bitcoin? What the heck is a cryptocurrency? And knowledge of something even more obscure, which is central banking. So it, I'm conceding that this is not an easy topic, but I'm also saying this is a morally, politically, economically crucial topic. And I think there's probably only 10 people in the world who even know what the heck this means or what it might mean. Because the two aspects of CBDCs are hard. CB part, central banking, hard to understand, hard to understand the motives. The DC part, digital currency, also hard to understand. Here we're looking at the intersection of two very complex topics, central banks issuing digital currencies. So I, that's 8.30 now. I hope that helps. Some of it may sound obscure. And so I'm open to comments and uh, questions now. We'd love to hear from you. If, if